Good day and uh, welcome to this uh, BJUI Knowledge video podcast uh, relating to our module content. It's my uh, pleasure as one of the consulting editors. My name is Mike Leverage, a urologist uh, in Kingston, Ontario, Canada at Queen's University, and I've been working with the project for uh, most of its uh, evolution. This podcast stuff is brand new to us, and so we're thrilled to be able to bring people live to put some of their modules in uh, in context. And I've got the a copy of one of them right here and delighted to have the author with us. And this is Ali Khan Lalani. He's a medical oncologist, assistant professor of oncology at the McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We flank the Great Lakes if you're looking at a map of North America. And then he's at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center and a uh, absolute star uh, in the Canadian Euro-GU oncology uh, world. So I'm thrilled to have him here. Uh, and when you access the module and access the module content, you'll see the excellent flow through here. This module is on the the sort of the roadmap and the evolution of metastatic kidney cancer uh, treatment all the way from the uh, interferons through the modern era. So that's what we're going to do today. We'll we'll talk about RCC basics. We'll talk about the older eras of cytokines, uh, the eras of targeted therapies, and now the modern immune era. As a urologist, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Lalani uh, do most of the heavy lifting, and then I'll ask a few sort of contextual questions as we go. Uh, and I think we're going to have a great discussion. So thanks for being here so much, Ali Khan. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. So let's uh, dive right in here. Let's just sort of start with the with the basics. You know, urologists, of course, we have a, a familiarity with metastatic uh, RCC through our training, and we're often the gatekeepers uh, when patients come to us. But we more often see the incidental finding of the isolated or localized renal mass. So uh, can you sort of go through the uh, risk stratification of, of patients with uh, uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma for us? Sure. Um, we're lucky in that in kidney cancer, we do have some prognostic criteria. So when folks present uh, with metastatic disease, which can either be showing up brand new stage four or recurrent after a prior nephrectomy, the IMDC uh, criteria, the International Metastatic RCC Database Consortium criteria, which again have been initially developed in a targeted therapy era, but now validated through all the prospective immunotherapy trials, which I'm sure we'll get to. So these are helpful lab and clinical values that should be really easy when you see a patient in clinic or as a medical oncologist or urologist at the time of really starting systemic therapy. So things like performance status, it was Karnofsky performance score initially, but it's essentially an ECOG two or worse would count as a mark against the patient having low hemoglobin, having high neutrophil, high platelet, high calcium. These are all things that would count against a patient. And one of the ones we that I think have needed some clarification is this time from diagnosis to treatment. I think the intention has been that if someone has had, for example, a diagnosis with a nephrectomy five years ago and they recur five years out, that is not a poor prognostic factor, but someone who presents with a nephrectomy and then recurs within one year of that initial nephrectomy or shows up de novo, I think that would be a poor prognostic feature. So when you put those together, if there's no criteria, that's a good risk patient. One to two risk factors would be an intermediate risk. And then three or more is poor risk. This helps to prognosticate some survival outcomes for patients, but also selects treatment uh, from a medical oncology perspective, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And yeah, what that is the the big thing we've sort of wrestled with because when we see these de novo patients, we really sort of don't know how to uh, deal with them in terms of immediately striking them a checkbox and putting them in the intermediate uh, risk. 
and as you'll well know, and we won't get into the cytoreductive nephrectomy stuff, that's another several hours of, uh, of back and forth. That sort of thinking about who the good and, uh, and intermediate risk people are is, is always uh, front of mind. And I've always thought that performance status seemed to be the one, you know, the urologist is the, the hallway test. What's it going to look like if I have to manage this person who's either robust or, or looking sort of weaker in a, uh, in a chair? Is that a, a thing or are they all sort of considered yeah. one and the other? Well, I totally agree. I mean, the Karnofsky performance score is essentially doing what we do every day. You know, how well is this patient performing and how much does the cancer affect their performance status? So I think across solid tumors, but certainly in RCC, we have a hard criteria, so to speak, for, for prognostication. And, and I do think the de novo patient population, it, it is challenging, but I think for the general urologist, we can say, hey, look, we know de novo MCSPC, not the point of this podcast, but these are different than patients who had a prostatectomy years ago and had slow grumbling recurrent disease, let's say a decade later. We know that those patients behave differently. So I draw that analogy in kidney cancer, showing up brand new stage four de novo metastatic RCC, lung, liver, bone, mets, big primary in situ. We know these patients with a primary kidney aren't gonna have a complete response, right? So this, so this is challenging. And then we know that they've shown up with brand new stage four disease versus someone who had a nephrectomy years ago and unfortunately recurred many years later. So I think we have lots of analogies in GU cancer where de novo presentation just appears differently. But as you say, it's putting the pieces together. How much does a cytoreductive nephrectomy change? Other lab values, not the point of maybe this discussion. But again, this is that constant evolution and important to make these IMDC risk stratifications at the time of systemic therapy because other things could happen prior to that point. A gentleman of a certain age will remember the uh, the, the cytokine era of, uh, of metastatic RCC, and this goes back to, for me to my uh, uh, my residency days. Uh, we spoke about this kind of immune activity inside the uh, inside the RCC, but I guess maybe a maybe a step zero question: Why no cisplatin? Why no uh, uh, taxanes? The conventional chemotherapies is that a known thing, or is it just that the trials failed once upon a time? No, it, it's a great question. I think it comes down to biology. And, and again, it could be a longer discussion, but the way I see it from a real simple nuts and bolts question, you know, pathologically when kidney cancer was being kind of classified, the whole looking like a clear cell versus initially non-clear cell RCC as a separate box. We, we've learned since then a few things. And as you know well, the von Hippel-Lindau tumor suppressor gene being important. So it's altered, mostly acquired, sometimes inherited. But that leads to this whole angiogenesis kind of cascade. So we know kidney cancer is typified by angiogenesis and therefore anti-angiogenic treatment can help. So this is why targeted therapies are so good. That kind of milieu is not felt to be super sensitive to cytotoxic chemotherapy as we think about it generally. The other thing which you're hinting at as well is there's something about the immune landscape that matters in kidney cancer. So I think the so-called old school or historic, I think is better to say interferon interleukin worked. Responses were there for some, toxicities were high, as, as you'll remember well. And so we've kind of evolved with contemporary immune checkpoint blockade, but that story still comes from similar biology. So what I would say about folks thinking about cytotoxic chemotherapies, and again, this is a little bit of minutia, but there are some rare non-clear cell histologies. I'm thinking renal medullary carcinoma, I'm thinking collecting duct carcinoma, these are situations where we might consider going to chemotherapy, but largely bread and butter RCC treatment is driven by angiogenesis, so targeted therapies, and this immune milieu where we use immune checkpoint inhibitors, saving chemo for those rare histologies really seen in specialized clinics. 
that's the the insight I think I've been kind of wondering about for a couple of decades now. Is there a patient out there who still benefits or still may benefit from interferon or interleukin two, or is that is that simply uh, in the past? I think in light of the availability of immunotherapy 2.0, so to speak, with the contemporary immune checkpoint blockades, giving it as an outpatient, generally tolerable. It's very different than saying, hey, I think a patient should get interferon or interleukin, which has its own potential risk of admission or or ICU um, exposure, as we had seen years ago. I would say the amount of cancer centers doing that routinely has dwindled significantly. Uh, we, We mentioned that in our module appropriately. So there may be some patients that in some centers might be seen for it. But the interesting thing, Mike, is that there might be some patients who have done quite well, the so-called excellent responders who are alive and well potentially today, having had interferon or interleukin. So I think it's still important to mention to them, hey, you received the standard of care, you're an extreme responder. But for patients with diagnosis in current kind of 2023 onward, uh, they may hear more about immune checkpoint inhibitors than the interferon interleukin agent. It does remind me of the sort of paradigm that there were a small number of people who sort of responded and, and seemed to have complete responses in the in the old era. And then in the era we're going to talk about for a sec here, that seemed to be not so much. There was more sort of tumor static. And that's, if I'm remembering, it was sometime in late 2007. And uh, my biggest question was, is this going to be on my qualifying exam? But there seemed to be three papers right in a row with sunitinib serafinib, uh, temsorolimus, mm-hmm. and that really ushered in the uh, uh, the site or the targeted therapy or TKI mm-hmm. uh, era. And some of those still have tendrils in today. So can you talk a little bit about on the emergence of those and the and the major outcomes that we uh, we saw in the uh, in the targeted therapy era? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, again, a lot of it came from that science of saying, hey, there's something about this von Hippel-Lindau alteration leading to all these growth factors that go to endothelial cells leading to angiogenesis and voila, as you say, this eureka era of having lots of target therapies. Look, these were standard of care. All the current uh, trials for immunotherapy would have tried to go against the the targeted therapy. And we've done better, at least from what we see from these trials, uh, with new agents. So the targeted therapies, I think, in the current era are still standard options post frontline immunotherapy or are used with PD-1 checkpoint block, the so-called combination approaches. So targeted therapies are here. I don't think they're going anywhere. And I think we're just using them more so in combination frontline or in subsequent line setting. Now we may all hear or have patients who unfortunately are deemed not immunotherapy suitable. So again, that requires kind of an assessment in a clinic where immunotherapy is given, folks are comfortable with it to really assess that a patient is so-called contraindicated from immunotherapy. I think in those situations, we are still going to the frontline sunitinib or pazopinib agents. Uh, But largely, I think most of our clinics for folks who see and treat research around kidney cancer, majority of patients are getting some form of combination immunotherapy upfront. And the folks who had been treated with targeted therapy for many years and done well can still get a subsequent line immunotherapy. So if there's any patients on first line targeted therapy alone and have not seen immunotherapy, should be referred to hear about that. But largely new diagnoses are trying to have combination approaches in front. Excellent. We're going you know, to dive in and out of all of our other cancers because that's where some of the analogies are. In the bladder cancer world, you know, there was the definitive MVAC studies that suggested this is the drug for metastatic cancer. Then there was the comparative sort of QOL tolerability studies with the gemcitabine and cisplatin. And suddenly, notwithstanding dose-dense MVAC in the, in the modern era, suddenly, uh, based on no actual superiority studies 
uh, gemcitabine uh, was the thing. We heard the same about pazopinib. This is coming from a urologist where sunitinib had primacy uh, uh, in this space, but pazopinib sort of showed up in guidance about co-first lines or alternative first lines, and it was based on the tolerability data rather than uh, than superiority. If I'm correct, I may be wrong about that. Was pazopinib uh, uh, or is pazopinib the major player here, or is there reasons that uh, that sunitinib has stayed at the, at the fore? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, if you look around the world for folks who are watching us or reading our paper from ver- various jurisdictions, look, generally, these are both approved first-line drugs, so they should be out there in, in global jurisdictions. We know practice patterns by certain countries may vary. I think if we keep it simple, look, these are both uh, targeted therapies. I think it requires familiarity to, to use. One of the things you hinted at the COMPARS trial, so interesting study, right? Very nice to compare two drugs head to head. Remember, the quality of life so-called check-in on those trials was often at the four-week mark. Now, if you've used sunitinib at the standard on the tin labeled dose and schedule, it's four weeks on, two weeks off. Anyone who uses that drug at the four weeks on, two weeks off know that, hey, if you do a quality of life assessment at the end of four weeks, patients are like, I, I need that break and that's appropriate. Because the pizopinib doesn't have that break, if you did a quality of life check-in at, at the four-week mark, it may be you know, quite similar to what you'd check at the three, five, or seven-week mark. So that trial was almost built in such a way, if you look at it from the back of a room, to say, we know patients are going to need that break at the four-week mark anyway. So quality of life analysis is always a little bit couched with that. The second point I would make, and certainly in Canada, we have data showing this. We did kind of our own Canadian kidney cancer information system head-to-head comparison of sunitinib and pizopinib, not to be punitive, but to describe outcomes. And many countries are knowing how to do dose individualization, schedule changes. So is it two weeks on, one week off, three weeks on, one week off, 10 days on, seven days off. And in that situation, we're squeezing out more in the toothpaste tube to get a tolerable drug like sunitinib in. So I, I wouldn't look at it as saying it's punitive on any one agent. I would just say, if you know how to use it, I think most people in the real world are not dogmatic with saying only four weeks on, only two weeks off, and that's it. We play a lot more with dose and schedule, which is why in the real world, I think our day-to-day clinical experience uh, could show that we can use either drug effectively. Serafinib and Temsorolimus, I mentioned them very briefly, but they sort of, uh, you know, maybe they were never involved in in my life because the poor risk people just sort of funneled away quickly. But uh... Do they still or do have any role in the, in the game? Uh, seemed to me that serafinib had to be after immune therapy, which would be pretty uh, tricky to uh, mm-hmm. to do in 2023. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, serafinib, it certainly is an active drug in RCC. Would we say that this is the most active drug for all the targeted therapies available in our toolboxes? Not necessarily. So I think it's generally fallen out of favor that we have the usual um, drugs sunitinib, pizopinib, exitinib, and at different lines of therapy, maybe cabozantinib, and lenbatinib. These have all kind of supplanted as a next generation of targeted therapies. It doesn't mean serafinib is not active, but we have something that appears to be contemporary, used more um, effectively around the world. So I would say serafinib is not really part of our toolbox. Now, temsorolimus is part of a larger question of what is this mTOR pathway inhibition? Is that still active in kidney cancer? Look, everolimus is active. I think not needing an IV treatment like Temsorolimus made Everolimus more attractive. But even then, you know, I, I think we're building upon beyond mTOR inhibition, apart from some patients who may be found to have TSC1 or 2 alterations. Again, some genomic nuances that is not necessary for standard of care. So both drugs, I would say, are uh, probably not going to be the most currently used drugs for our patients around the world. 
Uh, it's not to say the pathways they inhibit aren't relevant, but I think it's just fallen out. And so you're going to hear more about other drugs. Finally, we arrive at the the present. Uh, so a wonderful history and biology lesson about uh, treatment, although the, as you've said, the targeted therapies are still very much alive in the in the combination. So let's move into immune therapy 2.0, uh, where there's been a million players in a million disease uh, spaces, uh, harkening back to the old melanoma trials, which I think I'll discuss in uh, two seconds, uh, one part about that. But why don't you walk us through, if you can, uh, from your module, the, the major players in the uh, uh, in the risk stratified uh, settings in uh, in metastatic kidney cancer in 2023? Yeah, and, and I think most jurisdictions will be fairly consistent. So everything I'm about to say is is obviously with what we use in Canada, and and I think most countries would be the same. But you know what we've seen is an explosion, as you say, of frontline combination immunotherapy. So essentially, there's two big buckets here. One is the pure IV treatment. IV immunotherapy like nivolumab and ipilimumab, PD-1 inhibition and CTLA-4 inhibition like prolonging therapy. The other big bucket is going to be PD-1 combined with TKI, so pembrolizumab and exitinib uh, through the Keynote 426 trial. Then we had pembrolizumab with uh, lenvatinib in the CLEAR study. There's nivolumab with cabozantinib as well. Essentially all PD-1 TKI combinations. Different countries around the world will have different approvals. But I think really the nuts and bolts, and maybe we'll talk about this as well, is how do we select if your jurisdiction has both options available? In Canada, we do have options for Nevo, IPI, or um, you know, your choice of PD-1 TKI. And as of this recording, it's pembrolizumab and exitinib, but this might evolve by the time this is published. So you know, I would say those choices uh, will vary. Both are like prolonging options, which is great for patients. There's some nuances with so-called shorter-term endpoints. Do we need a quick response now? versus looking for the so-called tail of the curve, which I know we'll talk about. So I would say that it's really important from a urologist standpoint to say a brand new uh, stage four kidney cancer patient needs to hear and be assessed for combination immunotherapy because it's clearly life prolonging than writing a first line script for a TKI. I think if that's the real take home, then you know we can get into how do we select amongst all these options, but that's really, I think, an important point. That is key because, you know, sometimes with the urologists as gatekeepers, making sure the appropriate uh, referrals with the appropriate expectations, because whether it's a primary care doctor getting a report back saying, geez, there seems to be a metastatic kidney cancer, a urologist as the often uh, but not universal mm -hmm. de facto gatekeeper, having that conversation with the patient, it's not good enough to say, I'm going to send you off to the medical oncologist. Uh, you kind of have to package a little bit of a suite of information and, and prepare them for that. So that's uh, that's very helpful. So let's talk a little bit about that that selection, because uh, at least in Canada, we have a thing for the good risk and we have a thing for the intermediate and, uh, and poor risk, yeah. even though the studies kind of wove in a little bit and mm -hmm. only a few of them really involved that cohort. So when you uh, take that ball. You, you know, I think um, you're right. So first thing we do when we see these patients is it's important to IMDC risk stratify because that will really inform treatment selection, at least in Canada and many countries around the world. So you're right. The uh, pure immune therapy combination, so Nevo, IPI, so to speak, is uh, only available for intermediate or poor risk patients. So that means having one risk factor or more. So if you're intermediate poor, this combination opens up. For patients who have uh, any of the good intermediate poor risk, a PD-1 TKI could be available. So uh, you can see where I'm going. The good risk patient technically could not get an EVO-IPI, but could get a PD-1 TKI. And I think that's still the right choice for them to hear about with the current available options. Now, if both of these so-called big buckets are available, and I think, again, this is what takes time when we meet these patients to talk about it, 
I think very briefly, the response rates are slightly higher for the PD-1 TKI. So that's good, right? You've got two different agents. You're getting a good response rate. So you can imagine someone coming in with really organ critical compromise, very unwell, needs that response, can't handle primary progression on the treatment. That's where a PD-1 TKI could be, you know, really a reasonable choice. The advantage about the nivolumab and ipilimumab, look, they're both IV, so there's no chronic TKI toxicity in the frontline setting. You save the TKI for later when the body has never seen it before. And there might be that long-term benefit, meaning if the immune system is revved up, these are the patients that, if they don't progress, could very well have that so-called tail of the curve. You know, we have five years of follow-up data. Maybe 30% of patients have not progressed, all the censoring notwithstanding. So that's where you're thinking a long game, perhaps, with a combination versus I need something in that short, short game because otherwise progression is critical. So oftentimes what keeps medical oncologists up at night is that primary PD rate. So the chance that the drug will never work for that patient, patients progress. So that's about one in five for a nevo ipi patient, about one in 10 for someone getting pembroaxi, and about one in five for someone getting a drug combination like lenbatinib and pembrolizumab. So that's the big picture and the caveat to all of this, as we stated in our module, none of these have been compared head to head. I think it will be rife for an academic uh, investigator initiated trial to compare these, but you know, the world is moving fast to triplets already. So uh, we don't have head to head. It's why these things need that conversation in clinic. It sounds dizzying enough in the mind and, you know, to, to be a patient confronted with these, uh, these possibilities, uh, it certainly takes a lot of machinations in the mind of the oncologist and then the, the counseling bit. So briefly on that counseling, we mentioned this long tail, and that's what I meant when I mentioned the old melanoma studies. Things used to seem to tail off forever. Is that part of the counseling? Patients want to know, what's the deal? How long have I got? Am I a dying person or am I not? Is part of this to say, listen, uh, you look like you might be the the kind of person who's going to run this long tail and, uh, and we'll never see it? Or is it just something you say, hey, some people do this way. Uh, let's hope you're on that part of the curve. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of it is telling the patient that to say, look, in our experience, we see you as someone who obviously has a spread cancer, but it doesn't seem, as you say, immediately life threatening. We could uh, try to aim for that long term durable benefit versus someone that we see doubled over in clinic, very sick, very unwell. We need emergent start of care or urgent start of care where, you know, progression would be so-called devastating. Patients want to hear, I'll, I'll tell you the other way patients really do come and ask me about this tail of the curve. You know, we'll, we'll have a discussion. For example, I've started patients on nivolumab and ipilimumab, and we're getting one year out without progression, maybe some response. We're getting two years out. And then they say, okay, doc, now that I'm two years out, what's life looking like for me? Because you told me what I might expect at the start. And that's conditional survival. And we've talked about conditional survival from testicular cancer if you get out resected in two years without recurrence. But we had great data from the Checkmate study saying that, hey, if you've gotten to one or two years out, what are your benchmarks for survival one or two years out thereafter? And they'll ask very simply, you know, my daughter's getting married in a year. Like, what are my chances? Like, I have a property to deal with. Like, what are my chances I should deal with that? I mean, these are practical questions I ask. So I used to go to the Kaplan-Meier curve and back of a napkin calculations and say, now this is your expected survival. But we have conditional survival that says, if you get to here, then the next two years could look like this within obviously the limitations of phase three trials, taking that to your clinic. But that's helpful. So conditional survival is where they ask about this tale and say, where am I? And, and we have a way to talk about it now. 
writing that down as a sort of concept to riff on. Of course, it makes perfect sense. Before we round it out here, I think we've got a good sense of where we are right now, combination therapy, and then there's some decision-making around the acuity and the sickness of the of the patient. What about that non-clear cell person? Is there any uh, yeah. insight for that chromophobe in my practice from a, you know, a mm-hmm. couple months back? Yeah, so you know, all of these studies, one of the great things, but the limitations is that they're largely focused on clear cell RCC. So I would say off the hop, I think all of us around the world who care for these patients with non-clear cell or so-called variant histologies need to think about trials first. In, at least in Canada, our first line options, we can use from the clear cell and extrapolate to non-clear cell because historically we've just haven't had great differentiating options. So that would be my caveat is that in general, we would take metastatic disease and from clear cell and extrapolate to non-clear cell, which is great for patients to avail of. The, the one or a few caveats I would say is what we talked about earlier is if there is these renal medullary carcinoma collecting duct uh, RCC, these are ones that may not just be a simple copy paste because that's where we might have cytotoxic uh, treatments uh, available like the chemotherapy. So those are ones where you need to be careful and that means a good pathology review, maybe some genetic assessment. So those would be the caveats I would say can't just be copy pasted, but of course the ideal would be to have clinical trials for these variant histologies. Tough to do, but I think more and more of us are saying, hey, we need to think about these folks in that way as well. I was uh, very surprised, I guess. I hadn't thought of it uh, enough when I was reading through the uh, the module about the, the seemingly success after success, relatively speaking, of the sarcomatoid population, who I think of as this sort of hopelessly de-differentiated tumor, but they seem to respond much better than the control groups, at least in these uh, in these settings. So nice to have some hope where uh, where perhaps there may have been panic before. Totally has implications at, at surgery when a urologist is looking at pathology report. Are you seeing sarcomatoid or rhabdoid features? I know not the purpose of this call, but at some point, maybe a future call, we'll talk about adjuvant treatment for RCC and sarcomatoid rhabdoid features matter. Same thing when a medical oncologist sees that in the stage four setting. Having these features, you're right, prognostically, not behaving necessarily as well as we'd like, but might predict that they would benefit from immunotherapy. Now, the key thing is all the trials that looked at the first-line setting found that there was a delta, so to speak, meaning that the sarcomatoid rhabdoid features patients would benefit from immunotherapy. It, it There's still the more rare patient population. and doesn't mean if you don't have those features, you don't benefit, but it might actually be even more incentive to say, hey, I see these features in your cancer. I'm quite excited and bullish for how you might respond to immunotherapy. We should be even more pushing for that, uh, assuming a patient is clinically suitable. But, you know, that's really something all the trials have shown. These patients do respond to IOIO or IOTKI quite well. Amazing. That's what I've got in terms of this. We've come through this module very well, and I think uh, anyone who's watched this is uh, one uh, impressed by the knowledge uh, and the uh, the knowledge translation, particularly by you, uh, Dr. Lalani. But great sense of uh, of the landscape uh, right now. The future obviously holds many more of these uh, combinations. Perhaps things like triplet therapy. We see that in the prostate cancer world as becoming a pile on more and more. Feels like perhaps uh, a toxicity may be a limiting thing in in three immunes or two immunes and a uh, and a TKI. But uh, uh, any uh, any parting words about the uh, present or the future of uh, metastatic kidney cancer before we wrap it up? Yeah, I would say if folks are interested, look, we still need other drugs. One to keep an eye on is a HIF2-alpha blocker like a Belzutifan. Stay tuned in the next year or so from this recording. Maybe that will be part of our toolbox for spread or metastatic kidney cancer. 
you've mentioned the first line uh, use of trying to put three drugs together. The COSMIC trial, as of this recording, ha has not shown an overall serial benefit. Some toxicities, as you say, might preclude delivery of drug. So still to be determined for COSMIC, and there's many other uh, ongoing phase three trials looking at triplets, so stay tuned there. And then the final thing I think really relevant for this group is adjuvant therapy, complicated. There is a agents, at least at this recording, pembrolizumab is indicated post-resection. We need to sort all that out because what we use in the adjuvant setting might implicate what we do downstream. So exciting, lots to come in RCC, and you know, really a pleasure to chat, and hopefully folks found it meaningful. Thanks so much. This is uh, Mike Leverage, uh, Consulting Editor with uh, BGUI Knowledge, and the pleasure to be able to chat here with uh, Ali Khan Lalani, McMaster University uh, Medical Oncology and the Jurabinsky Cancer Center Canada to our uh, friends in the, uh, in the UK and around the world. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Take care.